And then before we conclude our readings with the last few verses of Mark's Gospel, I want it to be, us to be reminded of the substitution Christ accomplished through his suffering. What, what did Christ accomplish through his suffering, through his death, through his resurrection? So we'll listen to Jane read 1 Peter 3.18 and just can consider fresh how what Christ has done is powerful and personal. And then finally, Nate's going to come and read that conclusion of Mark's Gospel. The, um, probably the original conclusion of Mark's Gospel. There's a few <clears throat> verses listed after that, but the earliest manuscripts don't include them. So we're just going to assume that this is most likely where Mark has brought his narrative to the close. It's kind of a cliffhanger of an ending, so just think about how it sort of cuts off, you know? And so I, I think... Uh, a good thing to do as we do that is just try to imagine how do you think Mark wanted people to respond to his writing? How do you think Mark wants us to respond to the end of his gospel? So I invite Rob to lead us through the uh, scripture reading of Mark 15. This is Mark uh, 15, starting in verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others cannot save himself. But the Christ, the King of Israel, comes down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken him? And some of the bystanders hearing him said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And when Jesus uttered a loud cry, he breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him, saw in this way, he breathed his last. He said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Psalm 22, 1-8, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer me. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a warm and 
not, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who seek me mock me. They make mouths after me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me, like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melting within my breast. My strength is dried up like a posture, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of the earth, for dogs encompass me, and the company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and in my clothing they cast lots. <clears throat> Peter 3, verses 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous, the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices, that they may go and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. What do you need? What do you need? Have you sit in your chair this morning? What do you need? Do you need a good night's sleep? Do you need some guidance in your life? Do you need an answer to a question that burns in your mind or gnaws in your heart? Do you need physical healing or relational healing or emotional healing? Do you need financial relief? Or maybe it's something a little bit smaller. You just need some alone time. You just need a cup of coffee. What do you need? If you can answer that question, you're describing a felt need. Something that you can feel that you need. A felt need. Something you long for. Something you feel a deep desire for. Those are felt needs. But the funny thing is, many times they're not even needs at all, right? Merely cravings. Humans are like a felt need factory. They just bubble up to the surface again and again and again. But there's a big problem with humanity. A really big problem. It's a problem with feeling and generating needs accurately. You see, not all needs are felt, and not by a long shot. You have real needs, real life-sustaining needs, like gravity. 
like solar energy, and not too much, and not too little. You need a functioning brainstem. You need a diet with essential nutrients. You need a stable atmosphere with the right mixture of oxygen. But do you feel your need for those life-sustaining things? Of course not. We have felt needs, we have real needs, and rarely the two line up, right? Isn't that odd? Isn't it odd that God would allow us to be these creatures who don't feel the things we actually need? Why the mismatch? Why the discrepancy? I think God is teaching us something important when we consider this discrepancy. As we see that our hearts are preoccupied with many felt needs, but we're simultaneously oblivious to many real needs. The message points to our inability to feel our greatest need, our inability to feel our deepest real need. What, at the end of the day, do we need? What do we truly, really, at the bottom, the core of our souls need? We need loving union with the God who made us for Himself. We need loving union with the God who made us for Himself. But we don't feel it. Now that's not my idea. It's something I would have never come up with on my own. It comes from the Word of God. So let's consider some examples from the Psalms. Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2. As the deer pants for streams of water. That's a felt need, right? As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with God? A felt need and a real need, beautifully aligned. Psalm 90, verse 14. Satisfy us in the morning with... What? Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. Psalm 63, verses 1 through 3. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary where there's no water. As a felt me. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life, better than health, better than water, better than food, better than oxygen. The deepest need of the human soul is loving union with the God who made us for himself. And so these words from the psalmist are not anomalies. These words are moments of cosmic clarity. These words are moments of sanctified sanity when the madness of sin cleared away and the psalmist could see the deepest, truest need of the human soul. More than life itself, we need loving union with the God who made us for himself. But do you often feel that need? Do you often feel that need? No. Sadly, you don't. And that, I submit, is proof positive of how messed up we are. (laughs) We are so corrupted by sin, right? We don't even feel our greatest true need. 
when you don't even feel our greatest true need. And that is tragic. But it's not just tragic, it's also treason. So think about humanity dancing around this planet, you know, just wandering after all these little felt needs. We are, in effect, with our lives and hearts and minds and mouths and actions, saying to God, I don't need you. I don't really think about you. You don't make me happy. I'm not too interested. You do your thing. I'll do mine. I don't feel any need for you, God. You know what God eventually says to us when we live our lives that way towards Him? Eventually, God responds by irrevocably saying, As you wish, let it be done to you according to your desire. You have rejected me, and now I reluctantly reject you too. That's the worst thing that could happen to you. That is the worst thing that could happen to you, rejection by God, leading to separation from God. Is that even registered on your need meter this morning? Like, do you have an instrument on your dashboard that, that, that registers that need? With the psalmist, can you say to God this morning, your steadfast love is better than life? If not, Mark chapter 15 was written for you. Mark chapter 15 was written for me. Fortunately, it doesn't have to take long for a a real need to become a deeply felt need. It doesn't have to take long. I'll give you an example. If you just give me 15 seconds to grab your hair and dunk your head underwater, you'll feel your need for oxygen real quick. That real need becomes a ferociously felt need very quickly. So it doesn't have to take long for God to fix what's wrong with us by the power of the Holy Spirit. If your head is underwater, you would do anything to take another breath of God's good air. And that's how we should feel towards God Himself who made the atmosphere we breathe. But sometimes you don't know how much you need something until it's gone. Right? Sometimes you don't know how much you need something until it's gone. And so God wants to warn us. God wants to wake us up. God wants to show us our true need for Him. And so Mark chapter 15 can do something like that for us. We may not be conscious of our need for loving union with God. And we may not also conversely be conscious of what it feels like to not have God's loving union rest upon us. But Jesus knows what that feels like. Jesus experienced rejection from God in his time on the cross. And so in Mark chapter 15, the word of God is like spiritually dunking our head underwater with Jesus. So we can see what he felt. So we can feel what he felt on the cross. We can feel our overwhelming need for union with the God who made us for himself. Let's just briefly remember who Jesus is. Let's give a little bit of a background to our passage, and then we'll jump into our main text. Jesus is. Who is He? He's the eternal, pre-existent Son of God. God exists as one per- or is one God in three persons, right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. This is God the Son stepping down to earth as the promised Messiah. Jesus was and is fully divine, fully man, simultaneously. And He has a mission on earth. His mission, in the words of Jesus, was from Mark 10... 45. It's a really succinct statement of the mission of Jesus. Jesus said to us, The Son of Man, that refers to Jesus, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus came to give his life. He came to give his life in a particular way. 
He gave you gift of life as a ransom. A ransom is a form of payment when you purchase someone back from something. So Jesus came to pay the price for sinners. He was sinless. He came to pay the price that sinners deserve to pay for their rejection of God by being rejected by God himself. He had never rejected God. But he experienced the rejection of God so that we who had rejected God could receive the welcome of God. That was his mission. Now, the cross is where we're headed. The cross is where we're headed. But as you uh, walk your way through the Gospel of Mark, it takes a while to build to that point in the narrative, doesn't it? I think Mark approaches the cross slowly and deliberately, probably for many reasons, but one that I, I feel most clearly this morning is that we don't know what rejection by God feels like. But we do know what rejection by humans feel like. We do know what earthly pain feels like. And so I think Mark is walking us through the crucifixion narrative, the passion of Christ, helping us to have a context in mind to understand the pain of rejection from God. Now in the passage immediately before our main text, Mark is describing how Jesus faced this just really comprehensive string of rejection and pain in his last hours. So just, you know... Get in your mind this, this context. Back in Mark 14, Jesus was betrayed by his own disciple. <laughs> betrayed by Judas. Kind of where you might say it starts. He was then subjected to the secret arrest. He was treated like a, like a criminal. They had this midnight mock trial before the Jewish religious authorities. Then uh, during the trial, his right-hand man, Peter, he denied Jesus three times, swore up and down, he didn't even know the guy. Right, then he's led before the Roman authorities. The Roman authorities knew he was innocent. All right, make no mistake. They knew 100% Jesus was innocent. But the mob that had just recently said, Jesus, you're the king, Hosanna, would now set shouting, crucify him. Crucify him. And the Romans just gave in to pressure and said, yeah, let's kill this guy. So Jesus was then sadistically brutalized by the Roman soldiers, mocked, spit on, and struck again and again. All right, so that's what brings us to our passage today. Starting in Mark chapter 15, verses 21, I'll I'll read through 27. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he didn't take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for that to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. It's interesting, Mark goes into a lot of detail to show how the Roman soldiers harmed and, and abused Jesus leading up to this moment. But he does not go into great detail in verse 24 to describe how Jesus was impaled with spikes through his flesh to be affixed to a rough beam of wood. How he was lifted up, naked and bleeding for all to see. At this point, Mark seems to be just unwilling to describe this horrible scene any further. And he simply writes these four terrible words. And they crucified. You know the Romans were brutal. You know that cruel and unusual punishments were their specialty. Crucifixion was one of the nastiest ways that they had invented to slowly and publicly torture people to death. It usually took a day or more to die on a cross. 
So imagine this spectacle, this public, painful execution, and then there are people walking by on a well-traveled road who mock this bleeding, suffering, dying, innocent Son of God. Picking up in verse 29. And those who passed by him derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests of the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from this cross, that we may see and believe. The humans in this text just keep piling rejection on this man. And what incredible irony Mark draws out from these mocking taunts. The Son of God was giving his life as a ransom for many, and many mocked him as he died. What are the criminals on his right and his left? This is kind of the icing on the cake for Mark. These guys have only hours or a day or two left to live, right? How are they spending their time? Contemplating their capital crimes? Feeling remorse? Preparing to meet their maker? Not at this moment. They are hurling venom at the innocent man dying between them. Verse 32. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Why do you think Mark goes to such great lengths to show the painful suffering and the human rejection of Jesus? Why does he just go on and on about how Jesus was tortured and forsaken by seemingly all humanity around him? I think he wants to make us uncomfortable. I think he wants us to squirm. He wants us to be prepared to feel deeply something we could not otherwise feel. He's setting us up for what's about to follow. The pain and rejection gets much worse, infinitely worse. Now you'll notice that our main text contains only one quote from Jesus. It's a, it's a single quote from the cross. Now, we do know from the other Gospels, this is not the only thing Jesus said on the cross, but it's the only thing Mark records for us in this account. It serves, of course, then to highlight the importance of what Jesus said here. So let's read that quote. I'll start in um, verse 33, and then I'll read that quote. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now to help us think more deeply about what Jesus did say, first think about what he did not say. 
He did not say, Judas, Judas, why have you betrayed me? He did not say, Peter, Peter, why have you denied me? He did not say, Pharisees, Pharisees, why did you condemn me? He did not say, my people, my people, why did you shout for me to be crucified? He did not say, priests and scribes, passers-by, why did you mock me? He did not say, soldiers, soldiers, why did you brutalize and torture me? Those are all things he did not say. What he did say was this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He said that because his real need was also his felt need. Jesus was not the first to say those words. This is the opening line, of course, of Psalm 22. We heard it read a few moments ago. And Jesus truly could have quoted any line from that psalm. He could have said, verse 6, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind as despised by the people. He could have said, verse 7, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He could have said, verse 14 and following, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, which is a fire-dried earthen vessel. And my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. He could have said, verse 16 and following, Dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. Now all those lines from Psalm 22 were true of Jesus. Jesus was perfectly fulfilling this psalm as the ultimate innocent sufferer. But what did he actually say? What best communicated his experience in that moment? From the cross, what line did he actually quote? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Listen, rejection from humans hurts, but rejection from God crushes and kills. Rejection from humans hurts, but rejection from God crushes and kills. Here's Jesus. His body is literally being tortured to death, literally. What's the source, though, of his biggest pain? What bothers him the most? What torment rises to the level that he cannot stay silent, but he must cry out in a loud voice? The righteous rejection and holy anger that sinners deserve for rejecting their creator. Now listen one more time and pay particular attention to the pronouns. Think of the pronouns. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Can you feel how personal that is? This was deeply personal. You need to know that the consequences of sin are not some impersonal force. They're not unfeeling laws of the universe, cause and effect. You know, it's not gravity. We're not talking about the faceless workings of karma. The consequences of sin are deeply personal, deeply felt, deeply relational, deeply 
painful applied directly to individual sinners from a holy, personal, powerful God? What does it feel like to be cut off from loving union with the God who made you for himself? It's more than mere earthly pain. It's more than mere earthly loss. It's worse than being wrongly condemned. It's worse than being betrayed or rejected or even tortured. The worst thing that can happen to you is that you would experience the personal, powerful, painful rejection of God for the way that you in your sin reject God again and again. So on the cross, Jesus is showing us what we deserve. Jesus never rejected God himself, but he's showing us a preview of what it feels like to be personally, powerfully, painfully rejected by God. He's showing us how terrible sin is. Are you a sinner? You deserve to feel what Jesus felt on the cross. You deserve to cry out, God has forsaken me for all eternity. That's what hell feels like. It's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Why is there weeping and gnashing of teeth in hell? Because the sinners in hell will consciously feel the personal, powerful, painful rejection of God forever. Hell is the God-forsaken place. By the work of the Holy Spirit, the Gospel of Mark helps to transform a real need into a felt need. Spiritually, I believe God is holding our heads under the water with Jesus for a few seconds. Remember, sometimes you don't know what you need until it's gone. And when you look at Jesus on the cross, can you see that the worst thing that could happen to you would be to be forsaken by God? Can you see that what you need most is loving union with the God who made you for himself? If so, this is a moment of cosmic clarity. This is a moment of sanctified sanity where in God's kindness, your real need has become a felt need. Sin is a terrible problem. Sin is the problem because you can't have what you need. You can't have loving union with God unless someone takes away the rejection that you deserve to feel. So the question, of course, then is not, what do you need, but who do you need? You need a substitute. You need a savior. And Jesus is that substitute. Jesus is that savior. So listen again to 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the perfect, innocent son of God, the righteous one, suffered once and for all. He didn't suffer for his own sake, but for sinners. He suffered for unrighteous people. Why? That he might bring us to God. That he might bring you into loving union with the God who made you for himself. All of your felt needs point to him. And all of your true needs find their fulfillment in him. His steadfast love 
is better than life itself. Christ and Christ alone can bring you to God forever. Christ and Christ alone can bring you into loving union with the God who made you for himself. Who do you need? You need Jesus. And you can have him. You can have him by faith. Don't you want to come to him in faith today? And don't you want him to come to you? Let's respond to Jesus together. We'll just give you three ways to respond. And then we'll briefly look at the end of Mark's gospel. Three ways to respond to Jesus. Receive, relate, and rescue. Receive, relate, and rescue. Receive. Our sinful rejection of God is personal. It is personal rejection of God. The wrath of God is personal. Personal rejection towards the sinner. The remedy of God is personal. His name is Jesus. And the response that God requires to Jesus is no less personal. It's personal faith in Jesus Christ as our substitute. We receive Jesus not in general, but specifically, personally, by faith, for us. It's more than saying Jesus is a Savior. That is not enough. Receiving Jesus requires personal pronouns. Jesus, you are my Savior. I need you, Jesus. Will you please forgive me? I trust you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. Thank you for loving me. Will you receive Jesus? Will you receive Jesus as your personal Savior, the one who brings you into loving fellowship with the God who made you for himself? Receive Jesus. You can receive him by faith. Receive Jesus personally. And relate to Jesus. Receive and relate. Jesus brings you into a relationship, not a transaction. This is a relationship, not a transaction. Kids, let me give you an example. A relationship with Jesus is not transactional. It's not like going to the store and buying something. It's not like you go to Jesus and you say, hey, here's my sins. And Jesus says, okay, here's my righteousness. See you in heaven. That's a transaction. No, God brings us into a relationship through Jesus. It's more like going to visit your wonderful grandma. And she opens the door and she gives you a big hug. Oh, you've come. Come on in. I want to spend the day with you. It's a relationship, not a transaction. The Savior creates a relationship with us so that we can enjoy loving union with the God who made us for himself. Why would you want to do anything else? (laughs) You were made to relate to your Savior. Not just to know him in your head, but to spend your life with him. To enjoy communion with God. This isn't fancy. It means pray to him. It means sing to him. It means read the word from him. It means fellowship 
with those who love him. It means tell others that you can't believe how good he is and that he saved you. It means going to worship in a church every Sunday morning because you can't wait to spend time with Jesus. Now, of course, because of your sin, you're not always going to have all the feels in this relationship, right? But, but don't get this wrong. Don't get that wrong. Don't get the feeling part wrong. Don't wait to relate to Jesus until you feel your need for Jesus. Relate to Jesus until you feel your need for Jesus. Remember that. Don't wait to commune with Jesus until you feel your need for Jesus. Commune with Jesus until you feel your need for Jesus. Cultivate that kind of cosmic clarity. Cultivate personal satisfaction in him until you can say with the psalmist, Jesus, your steadfast love for me personally is better than my own life. This is a relationship. Relate to your Savior. Receive, relate, rescue. Jesus is a rescuer. (laughs) And he wants his people to join him in his rescuing work. And there are people drowning all around us and all around the world. They are face down in the water of rejecting God. What do you do when you come across someone who's face down in the water? You do anything you can to haul them out. It might not be comfortable for them. It might not be comfortable for you. (laughs) But our job isn't to make drowning people comfortable, right? Our job is to ask God to, to allow us to participate with him in his rescuing work. Now, I have failed so often in this regard. I need God's help to care more about eternal souls than the temporary comfort of the people around me. So pray for me. Let's pray for one another. Let's challenge one another. But the point is, God is, God is calling us to urgency, right? God is calling us to compassion. God is calling us to, to take action. God is calling us to put a fork in the road. So when you, you have a conversation with somebody about Jesus, do, do, do you put a fork in the road? You either reject this Savior or you give him everything you got. There's no middle ground. Let's not leave people middle ground. You're either drowning or you're breathing God's good air. Those are the only two options. Can we do that by our own strength? Of course not. It's a miracle. It's a miracle that you're sitting here worshiping Jesus. God can do that miracle anytime he wants. And he invites us into it. So let's pray for God to wake people up to their true needs. Wake people up to the fact that they're drowning. Wake people up that God would deliver them from their twisted, broken, felt needs. Now this sermon is coming to a close, and this sermon series is coming to a close. And so we're at a turning point now. The question is no longer, who do you need? You know who you need. The final question is, what next? What happens next? You need Jesus. How are you going to respond to him? Or if you have responded to him, how are you going to keep responding to him? 
What happens when, when you and I walk out those doors matters just as much as what happens when we're inside these walls. So what happens next? Let's look at what happens next in Mark's gospel account. I'm looking at Mark chapter 16. This is probably the original ending, verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. That's it. (laughs) That's where Mark seems to have brought this account down for a landing. Isn't that a strange ending at first glance? I mean, what are the implications of the empty tomb? Are these women going to relent from their fear and silence? What's going to happen when Jesus appears to the other disciples in Galilee? I mean, this isn't really much of an end. I'd say it's more like a beginning. What happens next? Like, please tell me there's a sequel, right? I think that's probably how Mark wants us to respond. Wait, tell me there's more. What next? Our sermon series on the gospel, Mark, is coming to a close. But just like Mark's gospel, this is also another beginning. How are you going to respond to Jesus? If you have responded to Jesus, how are you going to continue responding to Jesus? What does his death mean to you personally? What does his resurrection mean to you personally? What happens next? Together, how will we relate to him and how will we make him known? That's the question. I'd like to pray in response to the Word of God. I'd like to invite you to do the same. And then we'll also pray for God to powerfully be at work in our region and around the world. So let's pray prayers of response and prayers of petition. To ransom sinners. Or thank you for your clarity in showing us what our deepest need is. Lord, please help us to feel more in line with your word, more in line with your truth. Jesus, thank you for making us able to respond to you. Lord, thank you for making us for yourself and giving us yourself in Jesus. Jesus, we love you. You are our Savior. Lord, please hear us now as we pray in response to you and as we pray prayers of petition. In Jesus' name.